Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm speaking with Guy Wallace, who is a performance analyst and learning architect, and a true pioneer of where L&D is heading. But before we get started, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a rating on your podcast app of choice so that others can find us. And thank you very much for everybody who's done so. Now let's get into it. Guy, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. Now, the L&D profession seems to be awakening to a more performance focus rather than just a learning or, or knowledge transfer focus, which must be both heartening and frustrating for you, seeing as this has been your specialism and your work for more than 40 years. So how do you assess the progress that L&D has made in this regard? Well, I've seen this a couple of times in the past 40 years, um, but in all the new talk about performance and a performance orientation, I have yet to see too many that have methods uh, that can bring this to fruition. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back in 2014, I wrote a blog post about this vague notion of performance because I was seeing it back then. Uh, But in the uh, famous words of Peter Townsend, I won't get fooled again. So Mm. color me skeptical, but don't cry for me because when I entered the profession in 1979, um, I heard uh, the laments of many about this lack of a performance orientation. In fact, my uh, key mentor, I've had many, Mm. uh, the late Gary Rummer wrote about this in 1969 in a forward to a book where he said, we can't get there from here. And what he was espousing was that there was a need for people in the training field to take a more performance orientation, to become uh, performance improvement technologists Mm -hmm. with technology being the application of science. So he was looking for the science of performance improvement to take hold. So that was 50 years ago, and uh, we've made uh, starts and fits uh, to begin that uh, procession from training, content, education to impacting performance. So I'm still a little bit skeptical. I hope for it. Mm. I try to encourage it, but I don't see it getting very far. Mm. I, uh, I I wondered how far, uh, how soon it would be uh, before we got to this point, because I, I'm so keen to understand your experience from this, because uh, every, I mean, all the stuff that you post is, you know, going back 40, 50 years talking about this need. But I'm interested in that point that you just made uh, there that uh, that we can't get there from here. What 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 precisely do you mean? And is it that, you know, I've, I've talked previously about um, we grow we go grow trainers in a training room and therefore, you know, what, what we have are training programs. You know, is that what you're talking about, that the. The here is this um, obsession with with programs, e-learning and content, or, or is it something else? No, I think that's it. It's our obsession and our practice. Um, you know, I, I have a, a quote that I've made up that uh, um, training requests for new hires should be expected, but training requests for problem solving should be suspected. Hmm. Our clients come to us because we're all about training or learning or whatever label you want to put on that instruction. Um, And that's who they go to because they think that that'll help them solve their problems. Mm. 
But underneath that all, I believe that they really want performance impact. They want to improve the performance situation and they see training or learning as a means to that end. Um, but we as a profession, I mean, I've seen this uh, as a consultant since 1982. Mm-hmm. I'm brought in to do projects and part of my methodology and my analysis set of methods is to uh, assess all existing content for its reuse potential. As we go forward, you know, what do we have that we've already invested in, the shareholders have already invested in, what can we reuse that's appropriate? And a lot of the content is focused on topics. Yeah. They're all, they all have face validity. Sure, everybody needs active listening, but, but we don't teach active listening or many of the other topics with a performance orientation in the perform, reflecting the performance context of the learners slash performers, because everybody is a performer. That's what we're trying to impact. And we use learning as, as a means to that. But we don't look at the per- current state performance situation. We don't understand what the variables to performance are. We don't understand what the barriers are that people are dealing with. Mm-hmm. We just give them reasonable sounding content on topics too often, not, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing yeah. here a bit, um, but, but that's our main practice. That's what I've seen as I assess all of my clients' existing content for reuse purposes. Uh, they talk about topics, but they don't go that final mile, so to speak, to get to here's how you apply that in your performance context, something that's authentic enough for you that we're likely to impact the ability for this to transfer um, because we've had you practice and we've given you uh, reinforcing and corrective feedback in practice in an authentic setting so that when the learner performer goes back to the job, that they have some reasonable expectation and confidence that they can go back there and apply it in their job setting. Yeah, I've, I've thought this for a while that we – in learning and development, again, a generalization, um, we give the hard work to our learner, if we to use that phrase, to transfer the learning back when we haven't understood enough of their context. All we've done really is taken a topic-centric approach. Um, so, we've, so for categorization and delivery purposes, we've isolated skills and knowledge, whether that be communication skills, presentation, time management. We haven't bothered to do the work ourselves to really understand the context. So what we've done is there's still an enormous amount of work of translation and transfer to be done that we just hand over to the people who aren't skilled in that. And almost, it's almost as if they've got a sift for gold and also battle biology in the, the, um, the recall and the transfer uh, of all of that stuff. And I wonder whether we're at a precipice now that uh, we're really either going to be disrupted or disrupt ourselves because user centricity is the key. And it's the key as far as software development is concerned well certainly um with uh, digital products these days that have disrupted entire industries taking a user-centric approach to understand where somebody is and where they want to go is the key to engagement it's the very key to traction in itself so if a learning and development stops this topic-centric approach and filling platforms full of content and expecting that to solve these undefined problems then we'll take this path to user centricity and actually help people to with the problems that are needed to be solved. Now, am I being too optimistic there that, that, <laughs> that, that with, with modern approaches to the way that, that other disciplines 
take to, to traction and product development that we might actually learn or otherwise this might be taken out of our hands? Well, I, I agree with you. I, I, and I thought you were being optimistic. And of course, we should be optimistic. We should hope for the best. Mm. Um, but, you know, why is it that we are unable to take a performance orientation to the content? Uh, and I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, poor practices or non-existing practices with analysis. Mm. Our uh, back when I entered the field, the phrase analysis paralysis was key. And so one of the things that uh, many of us try to do is figure out how to accelerate our analysis processes. Mm. I had a client when I was an employee at Motorola back in 1981, who I was meeting with them. There were 30 people in the room. They had made a request of the training organization at corporate headquarters. And uh, I listened to their request and everything everybody had to say. And then I laid out, you know, how we would go forward from here. And I was stopped cold when I was started to talk about analysis. And, and uh, the person that turned out to be my uh, key client out of those 30, he said, Guy, we hate it when you come back 90 days later and tell us what we told you on day one. Mm. And I had to rationalize how this was going to be different, how I was going to probe deeper. And I, and I did that because I asked them some of the questions I was going to ask the actual performers, the master performers or, or uh, key performers, star performers, many different names for this. Uh, um, and, and I, I asked the kinds of questions that went deeper to into this target audience. And many of the people in the room had been that had done that job 20 years earlier, but they didn't know today's reality. Mm. So they gave, they cut me some slack and they let me go and do my analysis. I made sure to get done uh, sooner than 90 days. And I made uh, sure to, to bring back more than they had already told me. Uh, but, but we, we don't have good practices our clients don't like it because it seems like it's a de delaying tactic. Our management has heard those complaints from our clients, so they don't support it. And nowadays, they just say, go and search the Internet and find some good content mm -hmm. and uh, package that and, and give them what they're asking for. Well, that's generic content. It's not explicit. It's specific to the performer's authentic context. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they may learn it well, they, you know, uh, excuse me for using the old uh, evaluation methods, excuse me, uh, Will Tallheimer. Um, but uh, so they may like it at level one, they may have mastered the learning objectives level two, but level three transfer doesn't happen because we didn't prepare them, uh, especially for, you know, complex or tough performance situations. If it's all easy peasy stuff, mm -hmm. then yeah, we can train in that and they can go out there and do that. But then my question would have been, why did we tackle the easy stuff? Yeah. Um, but anyway. <laughs> well, I'd like to, uh, to, um, to take a step back for, for a moment, Guy, and understand the work that you've done because we can clearly benefit from, from your experience. There is... Um, so much talk of performance consulting in learning and development right now. So, so touching on the analysis part, but the focus on performance and then actually acting once we have understood the performance context and that there is an issue, you know, can, can leave a lot of people stumped, especially at like today's day and age when it's recognised that um, very, very few performance issues actually require training. But I'd love to step, up, step back for a moment and give you an opportunity to tell us about your work so that we can, we can kind of get up to speed a bit. 
Okay. Well, I'll go back to my entry into the field and back in 1979, I went to work in a small training organization for a company uh, that's no longer with us, Wix Lumber. And in that department happened to be Gary Rumler's brother-in-law, mm-hmm. who happened to have recently uh, been instrumental in working with Gary to bring in two people from Blue Cross. This was in Saginaw, Michigan. So they brought in two people from Detroit at Blue Cross Blue Shield who had been working with Gary Rumler's brother, Rick. And when I entered with my radio TV film degree, um, I, I was in, indoctrinated into a performance orientation a la the late Gary Rumler, the late Tom Gilbert, the late Joe Harless, the very much alive uh, Bob Mager, and many others. But so I was steeped in a performance orientation. And as I used to uh, explain to Gary Rumler, um, that I had learned a derivative of a derivative of his analysis methods. And, and that's very true. We, we created what we call a performance table. Nowadays, I call it a performance model, but it articulates what are the tasks and the outputs produced, who's involved. And then on the same page, we try to capture a gap analysis. So what's the current state? If some people are performing to this level, master performers, where is everybody else? So that we understand what are the gaps and what are the causes. And then we would, derive the enabling knowledge and skills. Um, So rather than, you know, that was our task analysis, went beyond tasks to the actual outputs Mm -hmm. and the stakeholder requirements, the key measures for both outputs and tasks. But then we would derive the enabling knowledge and skills. And then I would go look at the existing content to see what we could salvage because of shareholders had already invested in that. And let's not just throw everything away. And then we would take that data, review it with the client um, to make sure that they agreed that's the ideal performance that we want. Yeah, those are the current state gaps because we have to, if we can't resolve the gaps, the causes of the gaps, we need to teach the novice performers what the master performers already know, Mm -hmm. how to avoid the gaps in the first place, the barriers in the first place, and what to do if they were unavoidable because master performers have those strategies. They've been there, they've done that. So we need to tap into their expertise. Mm -hmm. Um, Although the research shows us that subject matter experts, master performers, and really all of us operate on non-conscious knowledge. We don't even know what we know. Mm -hmm. So if we were to sit and ask a subject matter expert, you know, how do they do things? What the research suggests, and I've gotten this from Dr. Richard E. Clark, um, is they can tell they, they will miss 70% of what a novice needs. And so his method, uh, cognitive task analysis, is a method for meeting with subject matter experts and uh, filling in the gaps, if you will, from what the first subject matter expert told us with what the second and third might, and then going round and round with that. Mm. I've been using what I call a facilitated group process where I would bring together eight to 12 master performers and maybe other subject matter experts, maybe supervisors and managers, maybe novice performers, but we would work together to produce this performance model that said, you know, here's the output, here's the key measures, here's the tasks that you perform to produce that output. Here's the various roles and responsibilities because often it's a collaborative process and sales is working with marketing and they're working with engineering. And so who's doing what to produce this output? You know, let's be clear about what all the roles are. Um, 
And then what are the gaps? What are the barriers? What are the causes? Um, and is that a cause of people's knowledge and skill deficiencies? Or is that an environmental resource that's missing? They're working with bad data or the data is late mm-hmm. or they don't have the right tools. Their saws aren't sharp enough or whatever that is that's not got anything to do with knowledge and skills of the performers. Again, novice performers need to be taught that, but, but if we're trying to address a performance problem with the incumbent populations, you know, training is, as Gary Rummler used to say, you know, and in three days, they'll come out knowing what they already knew on day one. Mm. Um, and so too often we do that, um, again, because we don't have good analysis processes. And then how we design content, you know, I've been taking a modular approach to designing of content in, in my curriculum architecture design process that I've been doing since actually 81 when I was back at Motorola. But as a consultant, now I've done 76 of these mm. um, since 82. Um, and we produce a training and development path that lays out a modular sequence of content. It's a starting point. It takes people from onboarding development into ongoing development. Um, onboarding addresses, you know, demystifying the organization, demystifying the job, mm-hmm. and then providing any immediate survival skills that are needed before people, you know, theoretically would take the job. Usually that's ideal, mm. but uh, not real. Um, and then they go in, but, but the, the front end is usually highly modularized because the target audience may already know some of this stuff because of their education or work experiences. Mm. So we don't want to force people through things that they already know, and we can either test them out or let the, they and their boss decide whether or not they already know that and they can skip it. But we're trying to speed and accelerate people coming to some level of performance competence so they can take the job with some competence and, and, you know, deal with the high stakes, high risk, high reward performance areas. Um, And uh, so, so we produce a training and development path. It's a very, it's a visual marketing poster, if you will, but we provide them with a training and planning uh, guide so that they and their boss can down select from the path, everything that they need and sequence it to meet their needs where they are. Mm. So maybe something that would have been taken in the, you know, the 60 to 90 day period, maybe you need that on day one because that's coming up next week. And so we need to allow people to shuffle around the sequence that to take things in. Mm. So <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about personalization. Uh, we want to, you know, personalize all the, the, the training and learning for people. But uh, in my view, I want to performanceize it first and then personalize it. Mm. I want to account for the incoming knowledge and skills and experiences and education that people have so that they don't, we don't force them to take content that they already know, um, unless that's a benefit to the other people in the room if it was instructor-led training. But, but, but I've been on this kick since 1982 to move as much group-paced content into self-paced modes. Mm. We, I was challenged by, uh, to do that at Motorola, um, it made it much more flexible and easier for the learners and their management to get what they needed exactly when they needed it. So I've been on a kick. And when I do curriculum architecture design projects for my clients, it's one of my declarations that I make to the project steering team is that if you don't stop me, I'm going to move everything that I can from group paced into self paced. And here's why. And they usually cheer. And yeah, that's exactly what we want. Good. Go for it. Uh, and uh, if we come back with some group paced training, it's because people need practice and feedback yeah. to either 
so they can memorize things if that's what's really demanded in the performance context or uh, so they can hone a certain skill mm -hmm. asking questions in a sales call or something like that where just because you tell them how to ask questions in a sales call doesn't mean they can go out and do it. No. It may be kind of tricky and they need to work through those tricky aspects and get some feedback. So we bring people together. Now we can do that over the web. Uh, it not, people don't have to be physically in the same room, but uh, so, but that's been my work. So uh, my specialty has been this curriculum architecture design. Um, I also uh, do the analysis, micro analysis and, and micro designs for the top priorities of the gap content that comes out of that effort and build content for my client. Um, and on occasion, I'm asked to look at the non-instructional issues mm. because my analysis teases out, here's the barriers and here's what's knowledge and skill oriented in those barriers and here's what is environmental. So um, sometimes I'm asked to, to be involved in that, but often groups go off in the client organization and go fix their process because maybe there isn't one or maybe people aren't adhering to a process, or there's other variables, uh, things that I learned about initially from the total quality management movement um, or, and or from the work of Tom Gilbert and his behavior engineering model. There's these variables, and we need to be cognizant of those variables to see what's really at the, what's the root cause mm. or causes. And how do we address those things? And what I've um, what I've seen, guy, with uh, with the conversations I've had on this podcast, as well as the um, the connections that I've made uh, in person, is that the teams and the individuals who invest more in the discovery phase and what you're calling the analysis there, uh, and aren't afraid to ask the uh, the difficult questions that they know aren't going to directly relate to the delivery of content, are the ones who make the real difference. So that investment up front, as scary as it may be, and as how against the grain or, or even uh, against the, the expectations of the stakeholder, the more we invest in that discovery and analysis, the more chance we've got of doing stuff that works rather than doing stuff because we've been asked to do stuff. Exactly. Uh, Joe Harless had coined a phrase, front-end analysis. Uh, that's an issue with our the language in our profession here is that we have made many overlapping and gap terms, yeah. <laughs> and it causes a lot of confusion. But so that focus on – so clients understand when you're trying to understand exactly what the performance is that you're trying to impact, mm. especially if you can tell them how you're going to derive what the knowledge and skills are so that you can build the training for them. So I, I've never, this is another thing I learned from Joe Harless back in the eighties is that uh, he, he would say it this way at conferences. Uh, uh, so when your client asks you uh, to produce some training for their needs, the the wrong response is to is to say in a whiny voice, are you sure it's a knowledge and skill problem? <laughs> um, he said, and I learned from it, he said, sure, I can help you. And I can help you even more if, if you let me do front end analysis. Yeah. And here's what we'll produce. And here's how we'll go about doing it. And the client, you know, that would resonate with many clients unless they truly didn't understand the performance context. They were a, a middleman you know, brokering the request to the training organization, you know, help us build some content. Um, but the clients closest to the 
performance issue or opportunity, um, that that works for them. Yeah. Um, most often. Now, again, overgeneralizing her a bit. Well, you get you get traction um, or or engagement from your stakeholder if it really matters. I mean, you find out very quickly that it doesn't matter when your stakeholder says just deliver the program. Uh, because it's a low stakes game, you might as well just deliver it as long as it's not expensive. Now, um, yes, uh, sometimes that's true. Sometimes <laughs> it's better not to fight that battle on a particular issue, but to build trust with them yes. that you'll, you know, I've often said, okay, I will salute that request. I disagree with it, but I'll salute it and go do it. And they say, what do you mean you disagree with it? I'll say, well, here's the reasons why, yeah. but never mind. Let me go do this. I'm in a hurry now and let me produce for you. And if they see that you're on their side, um, and that you truly want to help them. Mm. But I've used that as an opportunity, being bold as I sometimes can be, um, and say, you know, that's totally wrong, but I'll go do it for you. Yeah. And they want to know, well, what do you mean? You know, I'm happy that you're going to go do it for me, but what do you mean I'm wrong? Mm. And if I can explain that, and they, they may still disagree, but at least it begins to open the dialogue. So I've had this experience. This is you know helpful when you're inside and you're working with the same client group over and over again. You can build that trust. Mm. If you're a consultant, you're having to do that each and every time you yeah. go engage with a new client. Um, if you get repeat business, then they, they'll hopefully trust you a little bit more to help them meet their real needs. So part of the thing in analysis is when I read out the analysis to my project steering teams at the end of the analysis phase, before we do design, I'll tell them, here's what the analysis data says. Here's what the causes are. So we're going to go build some training and I can kind of forecast, okay, when we go into the design phase, we're going to design training and it's going to do this and do that. We're going to modularize it this way so people can skip what they don't need, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll go into a development phase after you guys approve the design. But, and that opens their eyes that there are all these other variables and if they ring true to them, uh, that the, there's performance issues, there's gaps, mm. and here are some of the causes. Now, the real trick to that is making sure that your source for that information has credibility, which is why I always ask the project steering team when we kick off the project, you handpick the master performers that I'm going to work with mm. so that when I bring back to you the analysis data, you'll trust it because it came from your handpicked sources, people that you trust. I mean, why trust a training person? Why trust a consultant? So rather than do battle with them later on, I've learned to ask them to give me the top master performers because we want people to emulate them. We want people to be performers like them. So let's find out what their secrets are and we'll package that into the content. That always makes reasonable sense for people. Mm. Now, Guy, you came to uh, my awareness from LinkedIn, you are uh, prolific and very generous with uh, with sharing your expertise. And there is uh, there's a particular post that I believe you've uh, you've shared more than once. And there's a phrase in there that I love. It says, um, "Inside every fat course is a thin job aid crying to get out." What do you mean by this? Well, I'll have to give credit back again to the late Joe Harless. Mm -hmm. This was his saying. It was published in a NSPI journal. Uh, NSPI is now ISPI back in 1985. Mm -hmm. um, and what he meant by that, and he explains this in an in a audio podcast that uh, ISPI did in 1990, uh, where he was explaining, you know, he, he had this uh, task 
thousands, tens of thousands of engineers in a company and they needed training. And he did his front end analysis and he came back with a four page job aid that saved the company, you know, millions of dollars in delivery costs. Because instead of bringing everybody together to sheep dip them in training content, he produced a four page job aid. Hmm. Well, the client complained because that was an awfully expensive four pages. Um, I wasn't looking at what the cost savings were, but so the, the phrase goes to Joe Harless inside every fat course is a thin job aid screaming to get out. We produce too much content. Mm. And again, we're trapped in our training or learning paradigm where instructional content is what we do rather than thinking about the clients trying to use us as a means to the ends of performance. Yeah. Let's focus on that. And then as a means to that, Perhaps, and most often, training is involved, learning content is involved, instruction is involved, but it's not the main lever that we might use to affect performance. So this was his lament that we're producing tons and tons of content when we could have been producing, you know, pages of job aids. Mm -hmm. Now, the concept of job aids which is nowadays called performance support and sometimes workflow learning, depending on how you define those terms. Mm -hmm. uh, this is nothing new. Um, the Gary Rumler and Tom Gilbert called it guidance back in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, Joe Harless started calling it uh, job aids back in the seventies, perhaps even in the sixties. Gloria Geary called it EPSS electronic performance support systems. But you know, that was when you were embedding the performance support kinds of things into a computer application as people did their job. Mm -hmm. um, so these concepts are not new, but now that digital technology, computer technology has advanced and we've got desktops and lap and, and uh, uh, laptops and mobile phones, smartphones, we can deliver these job aids. It, it, back in the old days, you know, the, we, the big deal was to laminate them, mm. you know, because they'd get finger smudges all over them as people use these things. Uh, uh, but nowadays we can we can centralize the repository of performance support slash job aids. We can keep them evergreen, keep them up to date so that they don't go stale and become irrelevant to the performer's needs. Um, and we can allow access to these things so that people can get them that help in real time. Mm. Um, so what's evolved is the technology. What's not evolved is our taking advantage of it. And now, again, I'm overgeneralizing because there's a lot of people that are talking about this nowadays. Mm. And that, that's the hope for uh, we're taking a performance orientation. My fear is that people don't know how to take a performance orientation in the analysis to find out what are the tasks that we need to give guidance to? What are the terminal outputs of those tasks? What are the stakeholder requirements? What are the barriers that you need to watch out for mm -hmm. and how to avoid them in the first place? And what to do if unavoidable? Well, this leads me on to my next question, Guy, because um, performance support, as you say, and workflow learning are gaining um, a, a lot more momentum. And it could be down to the accessibility of technology, um, but it could also be that, um, that it's a proven concept now with Google and YouTube, especially, that, that, that we all in our, in our daily lives, whether it be professionally or personally, will access performance support in order to get stuff done that, that perhaps would have been left or we would have relied on more skilled people, tradespeople, for example. Um, 
But I wonder whether this goes back to your point earlier on that we can't get there from here, that we've got so much invested in seeing ourselves as educators that we have this poor relation, which is job aids in inverted commas with a, said with a derogatory tone that we won't lower ourselves to performance support, that we are on a higher plane. Now, I have laced that question with a hell of a lot of judgment on my own personal perception <laughs> there. But I'd love to know your perspective because this has been going a lot longer than, than I've been alive and certainly been in the profession. So why is performance support underestimated, underappreciated and underutilized? One of the things that I learned from Jane Bozarth is that uh, performance support as a term, because it has performance in it, reminds people of performance management, mm. which does didn't necessarily have a bad connotation when it started. But if it's really to correct you, the whole notion of performance takes on, it has a taint of we're fixing you, we're correcting you. And so the target audiences don't necessarily like that as a term. Mm. Uh, so, but, but, so we have, we're stuck in this paradigm where a job aid isn't what the client necessarily requested. Mm -hmm. And we may not know how to help them see that a job aid was all they needed. So I would have said, well, let's build training and teach people how to use the job aids in the training. They may not have needed that, but the client wants training. So let's give them training, but let's just put a chock full of job aids, resources that people can use on the job. But back to your point about, you know, using YouTube videos and there's a, there's a world of content out there. My question is always, is it authentic enough? Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I think that uh, uh, I don't know the right uh, technical term for this, but uh, Dr. Richard E. Clark, Dick Clark had told me almost 20 years ago um, that only five to 15% of the population can learn out of context and take that to their own context. Yeah. Now, my guess was that, well, executives are probably in that pool of five to 15%. They've learned to hear something, see something and go, oh, I can apply that way over here in some far transfer instead of near transfer. So, so that it can work on occasion. But, but if I were to find a, a, a great video and a great PDF on strategic planning, that's not necessarily going to help me with strategic planning in my context. Mm -hmm. um, we may have a different set of processes and practices in my enterprise for strategic planning. And I need to know to do that. I need to know how to do that. Now I may be able to get some general insights and awareness, knowledge, and skills from content that's just out there, but it may or may not be authentic enough to help me. And that's measured by transfer whether you know, I can apply it. Um, I think we're opportunity. So another issue with doing job aids is that nobody gets credit for that. Mm. Now we in training and development, learning and development, we report out activity measures as if they're meaningful. Yep. Uh, we don't report out measured results because we don't know what the performance and the measures were in the first place. We don't establish mm -hmm. baselines of those measures. We don't see if we've had an impact and an improvement in those numbers. Uh, so we re report out, you know, the in the old days, it was butts in seats, right? And nowadays it's butts on sites. Um, so we're not, we're not, tuned to that. We're, we're used to 
helping support those activity measures rather than truly understanding performance. And if we were to give out some simple job aids and let people go to some, some place on the company internet and download them, we don't know if they're using them. We're not measuring their impact and performance, so we can't take any credit for that. Now, if you were to go to the client group and ask them, what do they think? They'd probably give you the big thumbs up and they're happy as hell because they've got stuff that helps them. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes we take job aids uh, to an extreme. They become uh, standard operating procedures and are cumbersome and written in legalese and mm. all of these other things where, where that's overkill in the extreme. Well, again, and we needed to maybe produce something that was skinnier to Joe Harless's point. And it goes back to what you mentioned there. So the, so the legalese, I see this in compliance a lot, that you get the lawyers in the room with HR and the lawyers want to educate the employees on the law. And I'm there saying, no, can we talk about the judgment? What is it that in the context of their work and their environment that you are you're seeking to affect? You know, and that a lot of the time with the lawyers, it's, no, we need them to understand the law. <laughs> you know what you're thinking? Like, if we well, do what you're asking to do, not only are they not going to understand the law, they're not going to understand what they need to do differently. And I've been a big advocate of this for, for a while now, and I believe that technology has enabled us to, um, uh, to do this. That so much of success is built around context. What's, I think it was um, Groisberg um, who mentioned that uh, or did the study of, uh, I think it was investment bankers, that so few of them were successful in more than one context because their success wasn't just underpinned by their, their abilities and their, their, their knowledge. It was, it was underpinned by everything around them, including their, their network systems and support. Um, and Malcolm Gladwell recently in his book, Talking to Strangers, talks about coupling in which you, that it's really difficult to, to uncouple people's actions with their environment. And he has this wonderful phrase, uh, don't seek to understand the stranger, seek to understand their world. But going back to our point earlier on, what do we do in learning and development? We isolate uh, certain skill sets. We sanitize them, the remove from, from their context. We deliver this at people and send them on their way and ask them to transfer their learning back to their context that we've never sought to understand in the first place. Go back again, go back to your <clears throat> phrase. We can't get there from here. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's Gary Rummler's phrase, but, but so in compliance, lawyers are trying to protect the enterprise. They need to show the judge in a, in a courtroom, perhaps. Mm. Here, we trained everybody, so we did our due diligence. Now, we need to understand that they have that very real need. Mm. When I went to Motorola back in 1981, they did not allow us to do any testing as part of training programs. Mm. Zero, none. Why? Because they had been sued because some supervisor had used those test results to promote some and not promote others. Mm. And some of those others who didn't get promoted sued the company, and it was found out that the tests that were used in that training program that that supervisor or manager had used was not valid. Mm. So, therefore, no testing. So, in a compliance sense, there's, there's multiple needs. Uh, the lawyers need to protect the organization because it's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, perhaps. Mm. Um, Managers have a need for people to perform in their jobs. Learners have a need to learn how to do those jobs. And so we need to serve 
more than one group of people. So mm -hmm. we need to uh, let the lawyers measure the butts in seats and on sites so they can prove in a courtroom that the organization did its due diligence. But I would try to take that farther. I would try to actually help people perform in a compliant way to produce products that are compliant. Again, uh, the regulators and, and uh, uh, many others are part of our stakeholder group. Mm. We, need to, we need to look at stakeholders uh, for process and products and understand what are the requirements because some of our stakeholders, regulatory agencies as one, might be concerned only with the product produced. They don't care how you made it, who was involved, child labor, they don't care. They care about that final output and they have requirements for that. Other regulators might say, well, we are concerned about child labor laws, and so we don't want to see any kids too young in the process to mm -hmm. produce those outputs. We don't care about the output. We care. And there's other stakeholders who care about both. We need to understand the complexity that is stakeholder requirements for both process and products. Mm -hmm. And every output of a process is an input downstream. So there's the downstream customer and the customer's customer and the customer's stakeholders. So it's more than just our stakeholders. Mm. We produce uh, an output that becomes an input downstream. They have a performance context down there. They have stakeholders who have requirements and maybe some of those downstream custom, uh, customers and stakeholders requirements should be affecting us way upstream. And we, so this is all, again, back to analysis. Do we understand yeah. the performance context? Do we understand things as a process flow? What, what Gary Rummler and Dale Brethauer called the general systems model, which is the old input process output box with feedback loops back to the process, back to the inputs, um, and understanding where key measures are and do we understand that? No, we're given a topic to go generate training on. You got till Friday to produce it. So we, we go on the internet search, we gather all this content. We have nothing to help us skinny that content down to the uh, essential content. And so we end up with a lot of, um, oh, what's the term? Um, uh, the uh, details. Uh, <laughs> I just was talking rich, with Richard Mayer, and it, uh, I forget the term that he used, mm. and I have it written down someplace, I'm sure. Seductive details. Yeah. So we get trapped with, we have all these seductive details, but we don't know if it's essential or seductive. Mm. They're just part of the content, and we can't look at the performance, the performers and what their needs are so that we can skinny it down. And we may be able to skinny that training down all the way down to a two-page job aid uh, or a one-page job aid or three points of guidance mm. we we are opportunity rich <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're also uh, probably legacy poor because we've been doing <clears throat> the same things and we're skilled and schooled sorry in the same things uh, many learning and development professionals um uh, have their apprenticeship in classrooms therefore they learn from delivery onwards rather than mm -hmm. from from conversations around performance. So it may be years before um, learning and development professionals are actually in a position where they have the credibility and the capability to have performance conversations, by which time they've been polishing their learning skill set or the facilitation skill set to, to, to a great degree. But time's getting away from us, Guy. And, um, I, you know, I, 
at the end of every podcast, I, I like to, uh, to, to leave the listener with something. So it seems to me as if there is a really important pivot to be, to be done from learning and development if we are to progress. And that is one from learning focus or the knowledge transfer focus to one that is performance focused. And that is the differentiation between what we do in corporate learning and development and education. So if the listener is buoyed by this conversation or wishes to make that pivot for themselves, and I suppose just as importantly, bring their stakeholders with them, what would you advise? Well, there are a lot of people from the past that uh, you can research and and read what they've produced to help us with that guidance. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first book that I was given when I entered a training organization was Bob Mager and Peter Pipe's book, um, Analyzing Performance Problems, subtitled, or they really ought to want to. And people really ought to want to perform. But so uh, what I learned, and I was so excited about that book that I bought four copies and sent them to my friends in college who all wrote me back, because this was 79, so they had to write me a letter. (laughs) They all wrote back, what the hell is this all about? You know, and I, I was just so excited about the fact that I was entering this field uh, and we were going to help avoid content that wasn't going to help people. We had to look at the performance, the performance variables. We had to make a decision as to whether or not the root cause of an issue that caused the request had anything to do with knowledge and skills. And so uh, I would recommend that people read some of these things. Now there's people in the current day here who you need to follow the, the Patty Shanks, the, the uh, Clark Quinns, the Will Tallheimers, um, the Jane Bozarths. There, there's many, many, many people here, I think, who have a performance orientation. Mm. Uh, they may not talk about it the same way I do because I've been schooled by a, a, a different generation, an older generation. But I think that that's, that's what they're all about is making that performance impact at, with learning as a means to the ends of performance. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you, you ought to want to do it for your because of your clients. Um, they really want performance capability to be impacted, to be improved. They just don't want content. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to find ways to work with your clients and their stakeholders in order to really address that. Now, this is a paradigm shift for many, for many managers in our, in our uh, learning and development functions. So they need to go on uh, uh, the educational journey to learn more about this, to find quick, easy ways to do this. Everybody's under time pressure, so you have to find quick ways to do analysis and design so that what you develop really has a prayer of impacting performance. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a worthy pursuit. Um, I've been trying to uh, share what I've learned uh, from others and my own experiences because that was how I was brought up. People freely shared. Uh, the, my professional society was one where you could walk up to anybody, a Joe Harless, a Gary Rumler, and they would listen to you and answer your questions and invite you to go to the lunch or to the bar in the evenings and, and talk about this further. And so I think there's many resources. And in today's world, with videos and things like that, there's a lot of, that can be learned and gleaned from uh, from the past. But we don't want to get all caught up in the past. Uh, those people didn't have the, the technology available to them to understand how to really meet their clients' 
performance situations and challenges. Mm. Thanks, Guy. I think that uh, not only have you given us um, some some strong suggestions there of people to uh, to follow, you've given me some uh, some good recommendations for invite inviting guests on the podcast. Um, Guy, finally, if people want to follow your work or connect with you, how can they do so? Well, I'm on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So it's Guy W. Wallace. So there's two W's in there. Or they can uh, uh, follow me uh, via my blog and website. And that's at uh, Epic with two P's. So that's E-P-P-I-C dot biz, B-I-Z a little tricky but uh you can search for me and find me out there and uh uh, take advantage of what uh, i've been sharing wonderful and i'll put the links in the show notes guy thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you and thank you for being a guest on the learning and development podcast thank you david i think you'll agree that we've all got to take heed of guy's message it's a long time coming 40 or 50 years but it's essential if we're to evolve our skills our profession and the value we bring to our organizations If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.